On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Queensryche's Empire. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Ken Gregory, Tom Corcoran, and Paul Zotter, as we continue into the heart of the Queensryche catalog with Empire. All right, gentlemen, we have a decidedly East Coast flavor tonight. Three of you on the East Coast, one of me here in the Central Time Zone. As we move past, finally, Operation Mindcrime. And and I have to say, after a, a solid month, if not longer, of listening to Operation Mindcrime, I think I'm I finally moved past it. I, I think I've had enough for maybe the rest <laughs> of the calendar year. Although I will say that you can't walk away now. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that in doing the uh, some some additional sort of outside research for this episode, I did come across uh, some review of Queensryche. It's actually attached to the wiki page for this album where someone had the temerity to claim that here in the noun frontier was more coherent than Operation Mindcrime. And I just stopped reading, wow. hit the back button, and I just I didn't even need to stress myself out because Please. Operation Mindcrime is just absolutely fucking delightful. Wow. Fight me. <laughs> but we are not talking Operation Mindcrime because after four episodes and probably close to 10 hours of raw footage. I don't know what it's going to wind up when we actually publish everything, but we hmm. clearly have almost 10 hours of raw footage on Operation Mindcrime. Tonight, we are going to take the next step in the catalog and cover the album that broke everything wide open. And that, of course, is Empire. This is to Queensryche what... Invisible Touch was to Genesis. What so wow. was to Peter Gabriel. What synchronicity was to the police. The album that just defies all popularity and numbers and everything else. Wow. wow. <laughs> One more thing about about uh, Operation Mindcrime. Okay, this is just a fun little game. Um, if you open up Spotify and you go to Queensryche, there are what I think are two very obvious most popular songs played from Empire, from, you know, from their entire catalog. Their entire catalog rolls up to three songs that have had more than 15 million plays each. Um, the obvious one has like over 56 million plays, which probably is like, what, $15 you know, when it's all said and done. Yeah. Spotify <laughs> <royalties> <laughs> so, so the number two is what I would think is the other most obvious song from Empire. But the number three song comes in at 18,395,000 plus plays. And it is a track from Operation Mindcrime. Would anyone care to guess what track it is? Eyes of a Stranger? That would be incorrect. Close. I don't but believe in love. Boom. Kenny G. Uh-huh. Eyes of a Stranger uh-huh. comes, comes back about mm, 10... 10 million short. But that was the one that broke them apparently on MTV. Wow. So 
I'm shocked. I'm shocked to see that. Sorry. But anyway, sorry. So is silent lucidity the invisible touch? Yeah, I, I, it's probably not an unfair comparison. What's this synchronicity nonsense gone here? So the police were really big before that, but you're saying that they... What, what song was it on there that blew them up? Every was Breath You Take. Every Breath. Every Breath. Yeah. yeah every, I mean, you know, th- yeah, the police were big before that, but, I mean, they went just stratospheric. You know, this is when you start filling fucking outdoor stadiums by yourself on multiple nights type big. Right. And mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. Queensryche didn't quite that get that big, but, you know, it just seemed like a fun comparison. So It is. They're the progressive metal version of, you know, because – how much bigger does progressive metal really get than a hockey arena, right? Not much. We could say Owner of a Lonely Heart is in that same vein because even though Yes was incredibly popular, they they definitely upped it a bit with that album and the radio play. I, I don't know. I think that's yeah, fair. Yeah, I think yeah. it's fair. It's a crossover. Sure. So one of the things that struck me when I bought the the vinyl and the expanded CD version that you get to sort of experience things much larger than you used to is how ridiculously pixelated the Tri-Rike actually is. Yeah. It yeah. looks like in the good old days when you used to make a picture on your Mac, you know, yeah. and it would look fine when it was this big and then you'd blow it up and it'd be all fucked up and chopped up. The, the dot matrix printer. And I thought, well, maybe it just didn't translate. So I went back and looked at my original CD that I have from back in the day. And um, yeah, it's it's always the same. There's actually, a, I don't know if you found, saw it, Paul, there's a quote, I believe, from Tate in the booklet for this, um, where he talks about the, the cover and it was, you know, a corporate decision and and it was very sort of you know, sterile and whatnot. I I think overall, except for the fact that it's pixelated, I kind of like the color palette. I think it it has sort of a, a an understated power to it. So I kind of like it. I, I'm fixated on the the uh, the Tri-Rike, but it it does look a little little pixelated for my modern taste. Mm, interesting. Well, I confess I haven't even cracked the booklet open. Uh, on my box, my, my deluxe set, but you, but you touched on something that I exactly what I wanted to ask. I have just absolutely marveled at how good the remastered version of the CD in that box set sounds. When I play it at home, when I play it in the car, like I'm amazed. Have you compared it to your original CD to I, hear the difference? I, I have not. What I did do was when I got down here the other day, um, since I don't have a stereo system set up here in in Brian, I should have run it through my computer with my good headphones. But what I did was I went on to Spotify and the Spotify version doesn't sound particularly great, even though it's the same remaster. Hmm. So floored, floored at how good the remaster sounds I mean, I think the original album sounds the balls anyway, but like this just the fucking kick drum in Jet City Woman, which I might spend five minutes talking about. <laughs> it wouldn't be the just, first time. <laughs> it's just like, holy shit. It sounds so good. I, I will say 
you know, because again, I, I bought this and Mindcrime at the same time, expanded CDs plus the vinyl of both. And I mean, I don't think anything is going to top the vinyl Operation Mindcrime. That is just existentially awesome. Mm. But wow. but the vinyl version of this also sounds exceptionally delightful. If you're going to close out a decade, Empire is a good way to, to, to close it out. I mean, you just slam the door at the end of the 80s. I mean, this was not, I mean, it has a big production sound like the 80s. It doesn't really sound like the 80s. The last few years of the 80s were not very respectful when it comes to hard rock. So this was, in my definition, a good way to end it uh, with all the sort of other silliness. Actually, Ken, you'll probably name off, well, actually not in the progressive rock world, but in the hard rock world, there'll be some insane comparisons, insanely bad hard rock bands that came out and that were popular at the end of the 80s. But this sort of saved it. Another thing I wanted to bring up is the fact that we've talked about the fact that Rage for Order and Operation Mindcrime sort of don't sound anything alike. They're almost like two different animals. And that's what some of the fun is. It's really two anomalies that, I mean, they really reinvented the wheel. What I found interesting listening to this, listening to Empire this week is I find Empire to be the kind of connection, the conduit, if you will, between Rage for Water and Operation Mind Crime. It, but it's weird that it comes after Mind Crime. For instance, if you listen to Rage for Order and then Mind Crime, there's just there's hard you, it's hard to find things that connect the two. But when I listen to to, to Empire, uh, I listen to the song Empire. I can or the the uh, Walk the Thin Line. There's a lot of these really interesting call and response things going on with the vocals. There are a lot of like very Progressive things happening, not necessarily like long songs that we think of as progressive, but I, I hear a lot of Rage for Order in particular, even though, even like a not so great song like Resistance. Uh, I'm almost like if you have... Uh, <laughs> we're gonna, <laughs> I'm so come, glad you said I'm, that, Tom. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the um, only one that's going to poo-poo that song. Okay. <laughs> so I, I hear a polished version of something off of the warning or maybe rage for order but just not as good i mean but yeah. it's definitely in that vein and also oh the third thing i wanted to say is we've also had a discussion early on about it was sort of a silly discussion but it was you know, it was one that was merited about heavy metal versus hard rock and how queensryche really sort of rides the line here between heavy metal and and hard rock and i i think that Empire is really the door that really opened up them into the hard rock genre. Not that it means anything and not that it's any better or worse. It's just an observation that I can definitely hear a hard rock record as opposed to a heavy metal record in say Rage for Order. And a lot of it again is, could be the big sounding reverbs of that time and used to like the big sounds or whatever. These are definitely the hard rock years of Queens, right? I think uh, empire opens that up. Okay. So a lot of excellent points there, Tom, to play around with, but, but on that last point then, cause we didn't talk about this oddly, I think in the last four episodes, mind crime falls in the heavy metal category, right? I would say so. 
I, I would say so as well. I was just curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I want to say that on the remastered CD, when I put it in my car stereo, which is a circuit day 2014 stereo, uh, and you put on the details, it is actually that the genre is listed hard rock. Well, there you go. Interestingly enough. That's got to be right. I mean, the metadata never lies. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things you said there, Tom, and and I, I, this is going to sound like I'm trolling you and I'm really not meaning to. I, I hear what you're saying with regards to sort of the, the arc, if you will. The way I see it, I, I, I agree with you. I think it, for a lot of different reasons, Rage for Order and Empire are sort of create the trend line. And I think Mindcrime is off of that trend line in the same way that I feel that the Soul Cages is out of order in Sting's catalog. <laughs> now, you also talked about, you know, sort of closing out the 80s with the production and everything they have going on there. So this doesn't have... It, it we could have brought this up any time during the thing, but I, I since it sort of presented itself here in the beginning, I want to ask the question of the group: How do we feel about the more prominent use of keyboards in this record? Is this to you know keep on our 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 metaphors? Is this Queensrÿche having their 1984 moment, for instance? Ah, great example, Joe. Um, because I, I thought this exactly with the song "Jump." Yeah, uh, I mean, I imagine if we were a little older and we were like diehard Van Halen fans, and then hearing "Jump," and then you know we're we're like, oh my gosh, what's this, what's what's going on here? This is just not the Van Halen that I am used to listening to. And that was an example. Uh, and I listened to that, and I, I came up with that listening to the first song. Yeah, it's a simple funky keyboard line mixed with very heavy accompaniment. And I hate to do this to you, Joe, but I, <laughs> I mean, I can see where you would come up with that because of the first track, but I don't really hear a lot of keyboards on this album. Like I do with rage. Maybe it's like, they're very patchy. I hear this album as a bigger production with yeah. bigger reverbs and, and more compression and, and so- just, very polished, but I don't. What's, you don't. You don't hear them. I think Tom, because mm-hmm. for the most part, the guitars and the bass are so righteous throughout. <laughs> like, I mean, if you if you stop and think about the end of the Thin Line, yeah, like there's like, on keyboards, I, that you don't think about that because what you're listening to is. Right, you know, you're just like ah, oh, right. At least, so so so. I'm 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 with you, Tom. I don't think it's a 1984 moment, and and, and, and either I've programmed them out of my head, or the, or I'm just distracted by the righteousness of of the the heavy. It and the, you know, so yeah, the keyboards are more present, but it's um. It's 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 and and I do think in that that fateful first night I was thinking the same thing like when we were first when we first put it in as we're driving listening thinking why is this starting with this keyboard sound this keyboard sound sounds terrible but it went it goes away right away 
because the guitars come in and you're just like satisfied. And and, and I'm not saying I, I necessarily believe that. <laughs> I'm just curious, and I'm really uh, I'm amused by the the strong pushback I'm getting to that to that question. So cool. Yeah, likewise, strong pushback here. Uh, although if you do want to credit someone, it looks like it's DeGarmo. I mean, apparently Kate wrote nothing on best I can to lead off the album. Gar DeGarmo did the music. He did the lyrics. He did the keyboards. It's all, and, and maybe this goes back to our, our little conversation, Paul, leading into uh, mind crime. When you highlighted side two and started to talk about the evolution of DeGarmo. I mean, this is really unfettered DeGarmo right here. Mm. Well, yeah. funny you should bring that up. I've got a quote here from the big book. And after I read this quote, tell me if if you were in this band at this time, if this sort of an attitude may have not sat well with you. Quote, Chris and I had this agreement that I would be more in charge of one record and that he would be in charge of the next one, explains Tate. We'd flip-flop back and forth. Mind Crime was my baby, and I'd push the heck out of that. And we decided that for the next one, we'd try something different, and what he wanted was a collection of songs that were unrelated. We decided he'd go into the studio and record demos, and then we'd play the house of cards and peel back the layers of what he had written and just get to the bare necessities. We had a tendency to overwrite and just fill up a track with all kinds of stuff, polyrhythms, stacks and stacks of melodies, and in some cases that really works well, but we wanted to strip it all back and be simplistic and focus on developing our writing style. Chris and I had this agreement that I would be more in charge of one record and then he would be in charge of the next one. Wow. The balls on these two guys. Absolutely amazing. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Unfettered DeGarmo. Unfettered um, DeGarmo. All right. I'm going to pull the grunge card huh. because between 1988 and 1990, in other words, between Operation Mind Crime and Empire, there was a lot of touring going on, but there was also a lot of buzz in other music circles. When did you guys, through your college radio station or through a friend or something like that, first experience anything that was Mud Honey or Sound Garden or Screaming Trees? It was right around that time, actually. Empire came out in the fall of 90, correct? Indeed. So that that would have been, I think, right as, I think I, I, we were beginning, most of us were beginning our junior year of college. And I think... And, and uh, August okay. 20 of 1990. So specifically, you know, yeah, before the colleges were really underway. So it was kind of an end of summer release 90. for... Yeah, because I was home for the weekend of Labor Day when we did that fateful first listening. <laughs> um, okay, so it was it was probably that Christmas, Ken. I want to yeah. say that whatever year it was, it was 90, whatever year it was at school, um, I had come home for Christmas break, and I think most of us were in Doylestown um, and I want to say, is this the same year that Octone Baby came out? 
I could be getting my signals crossed off and the yes box set. So this is how it gets all warped in my mind. I remember being at home and going to some bar in Doylestown. And the year before Octoon Baby. No, the year uh, Octoon Baby has was was out. So, 91. Okay. So then 91 would be the year that I was exposed to grunge full on, I would say. Because I I came home from Christmas break having seen a Pearl Jam video and not really understanding what I had seen. Mm -hmm. Octung Baby had come out and I realized, oh, I think I could like you too again. And it was during that break when I was at the radio station that I first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit. I, th I think that's how that all came together. Yeah, I remember that popped up in what essentially amounted to our senior years because I was on the radio in Delaware as yeah. well. And that was the only time we were we were on at the same time. Um, so that's when that started to happen. As a complete aside, I I've never gotten over the fact I'm a you know crotchety old dude, but God, Pearl Jam 10 was so fucking good. And after that, yeah. I just couldn't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I mean, that would have been I, in 91 as well. It's representative of the whole grunge movement, you know? It started with a bang, and then it just sort of lingered for 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we were East Coasters, not West Coasters, where the grunge movement originated. It was going on, apparently, you know, maybe back in 85, but strongly 88. 89 and yet we were still kind of oblivious to it i, I do recall seeing mud honey around my college radio station and catching some of that what materialized for queensryche was their most sobering album i like the fantasy i like the science fiction i like the comic book nature of mind crime and yet this is over dramatic real relationship love music it's a lot of um shall we say i don't know street kind of issues with homelessness and drugs and a lot of themes coming up here but it it, it hits me as a very dry serious album do you guys get that feeling yeah i mean i, I think you're right in that mind crime while in certain regards reflected, you know, the ills of society, it did so in a completely fantasy type fashion. Mm -hmm. This is much more immediate and realistic, I think. It's more rooted in the real world. Yeah. And yeah. all of the all of the rage left in them is basically reserved for just one song. Um oh, if there, which one? I would say Empire. Yeah. Um, okay. And well that's that's the Wilton song. There you go. Um, I mean, there might be some rage and resistance, but it's not executed well, if it is. I felt I would do the timeline of progressive rock injustices if I didn't I, first give some kind of tribute to grunge. But let's I, just do this. Can I, I, can I just before you do, I, there's a couple things I wanted to add about, I think, about what, what uh, Tom and, and Joe had said about the album. So I think I'm following along from the, out of place of sound. I'm thinking of along the lines of the Pink Floyd trend, which is interrupted by the wall and the final cut. Okay. Um, similar score. Um, yes. I don't, 
Yeah, because I think I think the soul cages is perfect, right? Right where it is. I disagree, um, but okay, that's a com- conversation for another day. Then. The soul cages is perfect, uh, but not in the order and where it arises. Interesting. Okay, so but I do feel like it. It's it's an it's similar. It's the 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 arc of Sting is interrupted by this one one particular record. Um, the difference, though, what, what when you compare Empire to like you know Invisible Touch synchronicity an album such as that the 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 thing that they have in common with those is that they're they're these more pop based songs to your point ken more down to earth less less sci-fi less comic booky less you know of that imaginative sort and more of you know about life and it has that that those prog tendencies right the the musical tendencies that make albums like invisible touch what we would still consider Prague. And, you know, I'll think of Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, right? More accessible songs per se, but with a much more musical and progressive underpinning to all of the songs. What's different about, say, Invisible Touch and Synchronicity is that when I come back to the Queensryche catalog after many, many years, I still think Queensryche is one of their best albums. Empire, you mean? I'm sorry, Empire is one of Queensryche's best albums. I certainly cannot say the same about Synchronicity and Invisible Touch. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Ken, okay. you were going to give us the timeline of progressive slash grunge slash metal rock? <laughs> it's funny you should describe it that way because in progressive metal circles, who do we deem as the godfathers of grunge? King's X. Yes. 1988, Out of the Silent Planet. 1989, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska. After Empire, we have Faith, Hope, Love. So there is a definite buzz of this sound coming out of Texas. Maybe spreading the love around to other bands. A year before, Peter Gabriel Passion, Anderson Bruford Wakeman and Howe, 89. And Gretchen Goes to Nebraska. Marillion Seasons End, talk about a transition year. Mm. Tears for Fears, Seeds of Love makes the timeline of progressive rock. Yeah. Rush does Presto, another mm. potentially tasty, interesting album there. So that gets us into the next decade, the uh, 90s. Quick and question, quick question. Yes. If Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe re-released that album, but with Bill Bruford playing real drums. Do you think we'd like it better? Yes. No. <laughs> <sighs> Long Sorry. lost brother, you, you ask a lot of questions. <laughs> Sorry, Ken. January 1990. Uh, Tom, in January of 1990, Fish released an album that we covered in detail. Yeah, first one. Uh, it's first one. Yeah. That's from Visual That takes us into August of 1990. Queensryche releases... Empire in a world of change, drugs and prostitution and sobriety. All kinds of good stuff. All right. So as Ken mentioned, Empire was released in August of 1990, released on the label EMI, produced by Peter Collins. 
personnel include Jeff Tate, Chris DeGarmo, Michael Wilton, Eddie Jackson, and Scott Rockenfield, with additional personnel credited as Michael Kamen for orchestral arrangements on Silent Lucidity, uh, Randy Gain, the answering machine message on Empire, and Robert Bailey with keyboards and keyboard programming. Mm. The original track listing includes Best I Can, The Thin Line, Jet City Woman, Della Brown, Another Rainy Night Without You, Empire, Resistance, Silent Lucidity, Hand on Heart, One and Only, and Anybody Listening. Now, in 2003, the reissued bonus tracks include Last Time in Paris, Scarborough Fair, which I think we actually had copies of much, much earlier. It was on some single or something. Oh, oh yes. And Dirty Little Secret. And then the 20th Anniversary Edition bonus disc had some live tracks, including Resistance, Walk in the Shadows, Best I Can, Empire, The Thin Line, Jet City Woman, Roads to Madness, Silent Lucidity, Hand on Heart, oh. and Take Hold of the Flame. Empire is the fourth full-length studio album by the American heavy metal band Queensryche. This is only their fourth fucking album. Yeah. I mean, here we are on episode eight, seven, something like that, for their fourth album. It's absolutely amazing. Released on August 20, 1990, the album stands as Queensryche's most commercially successful release, reaching triple platinum status. The primary single, the power ballad Silent Lucidity, reached number one on the mainstream rock tracks and number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. Silent Lucidity was also nominated in 1992 for the Grammy Awards for Best Rock Song and Best Rock Vocal Performance by a Duo or Group. The album won a 1991 Northwest Area Music Award for Best Metal Recording. In a June 2019 interview, former vocalist Jeff Tate announced his intentions to perform the entire album live in 2020 to celebrate its 30th anniversary. He also said that there would be a new 30th anniversary edition boxed set. So I thought... Given that, we don't normally do this, but I wanted to sort of call out, because it's it's in the wikis, some of the chart positions that they managed with this. Now, uh, Australia and Belgium didn't really get on board. Uh, it peaked at 127 and 141, huh. respectively. Canada, it reached 18. The Dutch album charts, I guess, for the Netherlands, 56, 22 in Germany, 18 in Japan, 50 in New Zealand, 14 in Norway, 26 in Sweden, 22 in Switzerland. Nice, strong performance wow. there. UK uh, albums chart, number 13, and the US Billboard 270. Now, that's on the weekly charts. On the year-end charts, it wound up number 9 in 1991, and it was still 67 in 1992. Certified 3X Platinum in the U.S., certified Platinum in both the U.K. and Canada. So, there you go. Wow. Mm -hmm. This segment segment might break us through in Japan. (laughs) You think so? You never know. We had uh, had a good good day in New Zealand today. So, Ah. When when you read those stats, it takes me back to the live crime video with Jeff Tate interview where they're on the bus and the manager is saying, "Okay, one month with Metallica and we're we're done. And and, and they're like, no, we we can't be done. 
ask Metella for one more month. We got to do this. We got to promote this. And then they, then they blew up. Yeah. And Empire is is the product of blowing up. Right. Right. Now, I have, I've got two things I want to read into the record before we get into the music itself. One is a an absolutely confounding review of the album that was posted on, of all things, Entertainment Weekly, which I normally used to like, from October 12th of 1990. And then I have some super duper hyperbole from the sleeve notes um, from the expanded box set edition. So I'm going to read the, the music review first. And this is by Jim Farber. He gives the album a D. Mm. Just listen to this, because it's just, it, it it's so absurd, it cracks me up. You've got to hand it to Queensryche. It's unique. What other band would intentionally seek out the worst groups in metal history and slavishly imitate them? Stitching together the dead limbs of early Sticks, Rush, Uriah Heep, and Triumph, Queensryche has formed some new kind of Frankenstein monster, one that apparently cannot be killed. Empire, the band's latest album, stomped its way into the top 10 after just two weeks on the charts. In a perverse way, this deserves admiration. After all, Queensryche is single-handedly keeping an abandoned tradition alive, the art rock wing of heavy metal. Singer Jeff Tate specializes in the mock operatic bellow that used to be a staple of the mid-70s bands weaned on Led Zeppelin, but too lame to rip them off with finesse. Included as well are such genre hallmarks as, quote, progressive, end quote, guitar riffs, i.e. tuneless bombast, and supposedly, quote, sensitive, end quote, acoustic sections, read Corny Dreck. On its last release, Operation Mindcrime, Queensryche even dared to unearth the notion of the unified, quote, concept album, always a pretentious, unwieldy form. This time, the group avoids anything so cohesively dumb, but the subject matter of the lyrics remains dire. The ravaged environment, gun control, and drug traffickers are all grimly assessed in these songs. But if the band members are relentless killjoys, at least they're sincere about it, which, come to think of it, may just be the scariest thing about them. That dude's, wow. that dude's bitter. <laughs> I hope I hope that guy got laid before Thanksgiving that year. <laughs> Jesus. Oh my. Now, you know, again, I'm not we here at the Plaver generally try to not, you know, roll around in, in you know, muck like that. But that was just like I said, so absurdly ridiculous. Was that the same guy that, re- that was that the same guy that reviewed us at our Battle of Bands performance at LaSalle that one year? <laughs> oh god. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum and let's get some hyperbole. Because again, I'll point out there are no Queensryche albums in 1001 albums you must hear before you die, the revised and expanded edition, which is criminal in my mind. It is. It is criminal. I mean, but thankfully, there's at least three of them that you should hear. I mean, yeah. I, I could argue, yeah. At, at least two. But thanks to Alex Milas, we have hyperbole of the highest quality 
from the expanded CD version of the box set. It was 1990 and change was in the air. The twee sentiments of 80s rock radio had propelled a generation of bands to superstardom, inadvertently generating a musical underground which spoke powerfully to a disaffected generation far larger and more pissed off than anyone in the record business could possibly fathom. Yet. The world was turning and relaxedly sitting on the rift between two technologies Two Tectonic Decades was a band dining out on the success of a record so astonishingly innovative and ambitious that it had continued to reverberate with generations of musicians for decades. But if the technical brilliance and vast creative scope of 1988's Operation Mindcrime had successfully confirmed Queensryche's right to stand, by, stand shoulder to shoulder with the greatest bands of the day, the peak of their achievements was still off in the distance. They may not have known it, but the world of singer Jeff Tate, guitarists Chris DeGarmo and Michael Wilton, bassist Eddie Jackson, and Styxman Scott Rockenfield would never be the same again. They were about to produce a record that was so utterly arresting and timeless that it come <laughs> to represent the band's creative and commercial summit. It was a work that would artistically bridge the decades, one that would inscribe all-time classics into the annals of rock and metal. It would also pioneer sounds that are still heard to this day. Empire simply was a game changer. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> wow. <laughs> great. That was a great read. <laughs> I love shit like that. That's awesome. So I feel better now that we got some uh, some some good hyperbole. I feel, you know, I feel good that we're talking about an album that bridges decades and and still inspires mus musicians to this day. This is yeah. this is good stuff. Are we at this point in time in the year 2022 are we allowed to divulge that we had early access to this record now? Is it are we <laughs> safe? Are we beyond the statute of limitations? <laughs> I I think that's that's fine. I think that was directed at me. And <laughs> Great. How can we tell a can we, store hookup? Can we tell the story? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So we'll, we'll we'll sanitize it a little bit, but but suffice it to say, and and in our first episode on Operation Mindcrime and other places, we told the story about when Tom showed up in high school with Operation Mindcrime and how excited he was. And I, you must have been working that night because I can't imagine why we were all at Jay's house and you weren't there. Because normally if we were at Jay's house, it was a band practice or whatever the case may be. But as I recall, and please correct me if I have this wrong, we are at Jay's house and the doorbell rings and we answer the door. And Tom is sitting on the front porch in hand. He has multiple copies of Empire. And this was at least one day, if not more, before the actual release date. Because Tom was working at a record store and had access to things maybe before other people did. So, boom, there it was. So, Paul, you alluded to the fact that we all piled into the car because this was this was, it was dark. I don't know if it, how late at night it was. So, it was probably like, what, eight, it, nine o'clock? Yeah, it was dark. So th this is this is the weekend of, of Labor Day because I was home. I was already at school for a week and I was home and I was not at Jay's house. I received a phone call shortly after Tom arrived. Oh, okay. That, that basically said, "We're coming we're to get coming you." Over. <laughs> yeah, we're coming over. Oh my be, god! Be ready, and we need know. to have 
reenactment. We need to make a reenactment of Seriously. this. Seriously, YouTube. It's a great. That would be awesome. <laughs> and and then and then all all of you showed up at, at my front step with with my copy that Tom was going to bestow upon me. And then we jumped in the car and listened to. We literally we just jumped in the car, drove and, around, and we drove. Basically, we took the back roads to 309, took 309 all the way up to like Quakertown, drove through town, and then came down 313 back through Doylestown, <laughs> back to, to do like the whole loop of, of Bucks County. You remember the, the, the route. That, that, that is amazing. Oh, my God. You guys are awesome. Uh, you remember picking routes. Oh. Uh. Okay, I, I was not on this. You guys practically went to the Sellersville Theater. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that, um, I, I, I meant to share this with everybody, but I didn't because I get distracted by things. And of course, now I can't find it. As you're looking for that, I mean, when we think about that ride, do you guys remember what you thought of, of Empire upon first blush? In the summertime, with the windows down, the music blasting on the road? I remember a very favorable response. But honestly, and this says just a lot about our, our friendship over the years, I just remember being so happy, man. Like, I just remember, <laughs> oh, I had to be at the new Queensryche, and I was with my, my besties. I mean, I just remember really, really good memory of that. And I... I do remember a very favorable listen. I mean, I, I, you know, even best I can, even with the, the, the keyboard in the beginning, it's, it's a great song and it's a great way to start out that album. And I, I, I just, I remember enjoying it very much. And I wish a lot of most listens were that favorable because a lot of times, I mean, let's think about it for a second, guys. Operation Mindcrime, it's, it's hard to beat out, okay? It's really the best of the best. The fact that Empire was as good as as it was is an anomaly. I mean, it may not be the end all of albums, but I mean, it, it actually, the fact that it was as good as as it is says something about the band and it, and it made it very enjoyable because by all means, it should have been a disaster. Well, so so imagine, you know, and and I have very similar memories, sketchy as it were. Like I just remember the the joy of that ride and all of us in there listening to this music. But imagine if instead of Empire, you had been sitting there holding here in the now frontier. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, oh my god. Yo, that's my point. Things could have gone awry really easily, and they didn't. It was a fresh sound to it. A nice clean sound that was giving us Queensryche, but it was also giving us something new. And it was it's a great album to just, you know, have in your car or listening. So I mean, it, yeah, it was it was definitely a memorable track. It was it, it was I remember I remember um coming back to school. I, I wanna say I, I think I went back to school, you know, earlier, you know, to go back and, and have some fun. I could be confusing, but I remember being I remember feeling like I was king of the geeks uh, because like guys from my radio station who lived across the campus were like walking all the way across campus to my dorm, like seeking me out saying, hey, hey, Paul, knocking on my door. Hey, Paul, I, 
I hear you may have the new Queensryche album. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> like, like it was, it was like this, you know. And because it was, right? There was no social media. There was no cell phones. Like you just, you know, the album was coming out on like a Tuesday, and here we are the the Friday before, and we have it. And you know, even just having it a couple days before people could go out and get it was like fucking great. Wow, God. We did we still have a band at that point? I guess we did. I think we did. I think it was, yeah, that was our last year, really. That was the summer of 91 when we did the last demo, which is, you know, Tom, it's amazing how much music in the in life you've introduced in like spontaneous moments. That was the famous Trans Am. Wait, did you have a Trans Am? Is that what you had? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the oh. Famous. Ken was dicking around with uh, some of the mixes he was doing. We were doing at Morningstar, and we went out to get a slice or something. And you, me, and Joe jumped in the Trans Am, and you played us. You're like, hey, here's this band I saw. It's like what I listen to when I just, you know, when I just shut my brain off. And you played us uh, Pretty Hate Machine. By, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, remember that. I first heard Pretty Hate Machine in your Trans Am. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Wow. I remember buying Pretty Hate Machine at Tower Records down on South Street. Yeah. There were a lot of first times in Tom's Trans Am. And for us, it was limited to uh, Nine Inch Nails. Gosh. So so what I had found and how it ties into to Paul's story of the, uh, of the drive, I saw this. Um, I follow Queensryche and, and Wilton on Twitter. So they announced earlier this week or late last week that they added a new date to their summer tours. They're playing Friday, July 15th at the Univest Performance Center in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> with, with, wow. With special guests, Great White. So get your oh tickets now, folks. Gosh. Wait, July 15th this yeah. year? Yeah. Quakertown? Mm-hmm. Rock me. Wow. That's doable. Would you what, believe what, what is the you, date, Joe? I'm sorry. Friday, sorry. July 15th. Okay, never mind. Would you believe that my wonderful girlfriend got us tickets to Lover Boy and Sticks? Really? Yeah. Dude, <laughs> I'm, are you going to the show at the in Camden? Yeah. Because I'm going I'm going <laughs> to the Holmdale Center. That same tour. It's the same tour, but I, I it's a different date. That's fucking great. And Ario Speedwagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which uh, which version of Sticks do we have here? Tommy's in it. Is it Tommy? Yeah, Tommy, Tommy JY, and uh, Gowan on the keys, and then the other two guys who are okay. filling in the bass cool. player and the everybody but Dennis. The Panazza brothers are long gone, but cool. All right, shall there we get? It is. Shall we get into Empire then? We've already we've already sort of danced around best I can. Yeah, it's kind of creepy, right? Starts with that that children's chorus thing and you know a kid's shooting himself with his father's gun and holy shit right out of the gate what the hell um but you know jeff sort of turns it around or i guess chris turns it around and gives us a a story of of hope and aspiration which is kind of cool definitely a glass half full type thing i love the i love the message i, I it's it's funny to me after all this time how juiced I get listening to this song in the morning on the way to work. It's like, it's silly. It's almost silly how like, yeah, I'm going to go be the best I can. What? <laughs> but it like really, 
in my life right now, right, my son Nolan is trying to pursue take hockey as far as he can. And we constantly have these discussions about how difficult it is. And I and I and I keep charging him with this idea that he needs to work harder every day because that's how life is. Like what, no matter what you do, you just get to the point where you're just working harder and harder and harder and you know trying to achieve listening to this song it's like ah yes right it's like that's just it it's 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 all right there and it's strangely inspiring to me even now this song could have gone in a really cheesy way like being the best i can i mean it, it's it could have really gone awry but turned it into a, a great song positive message that isn't really preachy but you know gets the message across there's a lot of dark topics with 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 queen's reich i think this is really the first song that it was just a completely different leaf altogether and they they somehow made it work where it wasn't like a a happy-go-lucky song uh, or or like a, a cheesy hard rock song of the of the late 80s and i think this is as maybe not as good a song as walk in the shadows but it gives you the same feeling you're like, what a great way to start off an album. I, I, I'm i going to take exception to putting this on the same pedestal as Walk in the Shadows. Uh, just, I, you know, and, and I must be a, a, just a cold, terrible person because I appreciate everything you say, but this song just generally doesn't do anything for me. I'm just like, eh. Wow. Know. Wow. Oh. All right. Even the guitar solo, dude. I, you know, music, yeah, epic. the the guitar solo is great, but it's just like, eh, whatever. And we're going to talk about this, uh, presumably next episode, um, assuming we actually get through this record. <laughs> but when we talk, <laughs> when we talk about Empire and Promised Land, I have the same thing. I put in the CD, and all I want to do is get to track two. That's all I huh. care about. Mm. Or in the case of Promised Land, track three. But be that as it may, like I am I. Yeah, it's just, it, I, oh it's my. okay. It's just, it doesn't, I like the rest. Like, I, I don't know. I just don't, there's something about these two songs that just doesn't do it for me. It's wow. already begun. The hemming and hawing, the entire rest of the Queen's Eye catalog is like. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, no. I, I was going to hold back. I told myself, don't do it. Don't go there. But Joe, you're. You're already pushing the buttons. Um, every track on here is over five minutes, except for two that are approaching five minutes. They're very developed, detailed pieces, all of realistic themes. Some of what I really love is gone. This is a high fidelity album, which means that I need good headphones or loud bass. And when I listen to it just like in headphones while exercising or something, it doesn't work for me. It needs to be high fidelity. And I feel like the death punch Jackson is gone. And he's got this grown up bass tone that's all deep and everything. And I want the comic book Queensryche back. That that sounds good on the shittiest boom box. Interesting. Okay. Um, so this, this is a very grown-up experience that needs to be on a grown-up stereo. And everything just goes a little too long for me. Hmm. I, 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 I'm not going to disagree I, with you on that point, Ken, because I think that's it's a valid point. 
I saw Queensryche three times in opening slots, the cute prime glory days after mine crime. Uh, but on this tour, I, I saw him once and I was good to go. I you know I was kind of off the Queensryche bus. I'm like, this is beautiful. This is amazing. I'm so glad to see them thriving. But it was just another experience. It was just, just they rocketed into another sphere. <laughs> and so it begins. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just the thin line. Like during the, the verse of the thin line, the bass is just like, bam, bam. The tone is... <laughs> As good as it's ever been with Eddie Jackson. Goodness gracious. I mean, it's not gone. So I'll, I'll, you know, throw some of my cards on the table. I do think, and I think there's too much other shit going on in Best I Can that it, you know, Eddie's in there, but it gets weird. I do think the rest of this album, you're right. Eddie is is starting to sort of evolve the sound that I think is going to ultimately manifest in just a joy that becomes Promised Land from an Eddie huh. Jackson perspective. He does kind of get his own song in this album too. He does, yeah. So, Paul, you, you kind of led us into the thin line. Now, for me, this is where the album begins because this song just, ooh, I love it. And when we talk about, about Eddie Jackson, right, I love the fact that the bass line on the first verse is very sparse. And then by the time we get back into the second verse, he just kind of, you know, he's starting to let it loose a little bit. And it's it's cool the way they sort of evolve the song musically through that. And um, we already talked a little bit about the keys on here. You know, I love this sort of deep growly voice that Jeff Tate gets. It, it has this... Um, sort of creepy feel to it that I, I really like. I don't know. I this song really kind of gets me going. Oh yeah. Can I just um? <laughs> so we go back to the best I can just for a second. Um, <laughs> first of all, do you guys know what the correlation between the sort of Operation Mind Crime kind of thing with the and the gun was hidden here? I don't understand story wise the connection lyrically between the other vocal, and then the Jeff Tate vocal. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, the way I was interpreted is there's no connection. Some, you know, normal suburban father has a gun that he hides in the room that the kid finds because kids finds everything. There's an accident and he ends up paralyzing himself, which leads into the paralyzed man in the song itself. Wow. And if you watch, right. if you watch the video, it's, it's actually even creepier than that. Because in the beginning, there's a shot of this dresser and there's what appears to be a hat on the dresser, like a fedora. And it's actually the kid standing at at the top dresser height with the hat on and he stands up. And at the end, when when the chorus is singing, no one there to catch me when I fall, he actually falls over in his chair out of the frame. It is spooky as fuck. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 cool. And as he falls out of the chair in his frame and the lyric starts, the chair falls and it's a wheelchair, as I recall. Yeah, it is fucked up. Yeah, that's my interpretation of the uh, beginning sequence as well. That's interesting. I've never seen that video. But I like the song even more. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but skipping ahead three songs, Another Rainy Night, Joe, you have said previously that that 
does sound and feel like a it, mind crime holdover. It does, but when we get there, I'm going to refute my own argument. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. So we're getting, <laughs> to, Nikki, we're getting think, to the big radio. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think Nikki was concerned about takeout food. No, exactly. But let's talk about the thin line a little bit. So, so Tom, you said this was your favorite song on the record. I think it may be mine as well. Between this and the very last track, anybody listening? Yeah, I mean, I think both are stellar. And again, this is a song that, to me, really encapsulates Queensryche. It, it really puts Rage for Order and Operation Mind Crime in a basket together. And this is the perfect song to follow up the last two albums. Yeah. It's like, Best I Can is unexpected, but I still like it and I enjoy it. But um, Thin Line is just what you want to hear. The band is progressing. The production is better. It's just a great hard rock song. And I think this was one of, it still is. When I listen to the song, I'm like, this is just the, the, the perfect Queensryche song. You know, outside of a concept album. I love the lyrics and the different sections as it goes through this. So if we look at sort of the the, the second progression, if you will, and, and sort of imagine in your head how the music changes as we go through this. Addictive face pretending, don't speak the word. Forbidden sin relenting, I barely heard. Screams of entry blur my vision. Wake my fear of divine intervention. Crawl away and bleed forever if you dare. Hand on mouth, the game goes on. Love, our stage to play upon. Are you happy now? I walk the thin line for you. Do just what you say too. With fear as my friend, I walk the thin line one more time for you. And I mean, there's there's at least four musical sections through that, and it's just absolutely delightful. Ah, and and Scott Rockenfield is just fucking oh. destroying it, and he and it gets to the last part of the chorus, and they hit that that triplet, the dun dun dun, and then he and then he goes into this like one measure groove where he's like boom, boom, boom. boom. And it, it's just like, and he's just like, and he just sneaks it in. Like, there's no room. That's what he does to happen. <laughs> and and he gives this giant like quarter note triplet, and then like one measure of groove, and then boom, you're just into the next part of the song. It it is, and he's got the those like sneaky snare fills right before the chorus, right where the Are oh, you happy yeah. now? Ah. It's just and and Tom, I'm 100 with you. Any concerns I had about the keyboards in Best I Can were just immediately cast aside during this song because even though there's keyboards in the song, it oh, it's just. And this this is credited with Degarmo, Tate, and Wilton, so we've got all three sort of sprinkling some magic around here. I like it. Yeah, yeah. And this and, is why I want to hit skip when I get when I put the disc in. Let's just get the thin oh, line. It's, it's fair, <laughs> and, and I. And I, I will admit, as I was attempting to indoctrinate uh, Nolan into this uh, on a on a hockey drive, I was trying to get him into Queensryche. I was like, "All right, let's let's pop in Empire." <laughs> I actually started on on this track. <laughs> I went right to this track, and he was like, "Yeah, this is pretty good." And I and and like we're halfway through. He's like, "Yeah, I'm really liking this." And I'm like, 
wait till you hear the end. (laughs) (laughs) And, and like, you know, the end with the, with the, the call and response of the guitars, right? You got the dan, 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 dan. And then they go, it's just like, and it's in the different speakers. Oh, it's so delicious and giant. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just like you said, Tom, everything you want to hear in at once. Mm. Oh, that's great. Ken, any thoughts on the thin line? I question if it's entirely a relationship song or if it brings in other tensions. I am fascinated with the lyrics and, and the concept. I mean, it's, I've always <laughs> interpreted it as, how shall I say, advanced sexual techniques. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Wonderful. What's a boy to do? (laughs) Hey, skin tight leather provides my pleasure. What can I tell you? Yeah, he kind of puts it all out there with that line, but the rest of it couldn't be interpreted all sorts of ways. The rest of it is Peter Gabriel level level double entendre. Actually, no, it's way beyond that because Peter Gabriel is way too obvious with his double entendres. So that moves us into the the video. Paul, I thought we were going to watch a video before we started this, uh, oh, this episode. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Tom, we got this great idea for the pre-show where we watch a video and like comment on it while we're we watching it. Do a little Mystery yeah. Science Theater 3000 we could, for, we could probably for prog do videos. It. We, we could do it now. We could just put it in the, in the middle of the episode and we then just could. chop it out. <laughs> oh, this video is pretty pretty fantastic so you know jet city woman if you know some albums you connect with in different ways some albums sort of present themselves and you get them and some albums you have to sort of really work at it and and sort of establish a beachhead and and work around regardless i think this album we've already talked about generally speaking from the beginning was a little bit more accessible and, and could sort of grab on but it's also one of those albums where the more time you spend with it the more things that you find to sort of keep you entertained and jet city woman i think is one of those songs that Content, like it was probably one of the very first ones anyone ever. Oh, that's a great song, um, but I do think it it continues to sort of to capture the attention. So you know, first note I have here is more Eddie Jackson loveliness. Uh, I find a lot of of Eddie here that I sort of respond to with all due respect to your um, comments, Ken. You know, the way this song just sort of opens up and starts to build the layers on top. And and when Rockenfield is leading up into the the big riff, it's just like Jesus. Okay, <laughs> you know, it, it's a different experience for Eddie. He's clearly playing with a pick and driving this thing in a different style. And I, I do appreciate it. It's definitely good. It, it's just slightly different from the early version of him that I fell in love with. Okay, it's interesting what you said about the time lapse Mm -hmm. effect of of certain songs and this being one of them so fast forward like a complete year maybe you know a whole year after this album came out and now i'm living in an apartment with colby and you know we're new apartment mates so we're you know diving into each other's collections and you know enjoying some of the things that we have commonalities and of course we were already aware that we were both queensrike fans and he, for whatever reason, we we were just 
fixated on Jet City Woman. And he goes, have you ever noticed the guitar in that spot? And I'm like, like, of course I have. Like, I've listened to this song like a million times in the, in the last year. He's like, no. He's like, you know the riff? Like, dun -dun -dun -dun. and I'm like, you know, right before the, it's like, dun -dun 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 -dun. and I'm like, yeah. He's like, listen to right after that, right in between. He goes, there's a chicka. And I'm like listening and it's like, -na 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 -chicka -dang. and I was like, oh, mind blown, you know, <laughs> a year later. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. I, I saw something in the lyrics here because, again, I've as many years as we've been listening to this album, it, it wasn't until I had the super duper deluxe box set where I actually had lyrics of the size that I could read. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I don't, you know, a, a lot of the lyrics seem to be so obvious. I never really thought about them. And, and there were some surprises that I found um, as I was going through, you know, sort of my, my final listen with the lyrics. And it, there was one here when I, you know, I sort of knew it, but when you see it written down, I was like, huh, that's interesting. So presumably, you know, this song Jet City Woman is about someone being away from, you know, the woman that he loves. But apparently he's not always a good boy when he's away. So let's just go to the, the second verse. Whenever I'm alone, I'm thinking there's a part missing from my life. Wondering where I'd be without your love holding me together. Now I'm watching the time tick, tick away. Face grows longer every day. Fortunes are lost on the women I've seen, but without you, I can't breathe. What is this guy spending his money on, gentlemen? Mm. It doesn't sound like something you want to tell your parents about. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's compounded by the fact that apparently all the royalties from his writing on oh. this album went to his second wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Jet City Woman, Susan. That's really to Susan. A, of great concern to me overall. <laughs> it's yeah. embarrassing. I, I, I know the sequence of Sandy. Susan and Suzanne, but uh, Suzanne appears to be the winner, the winner of the pack. Oh, there, the, the offstage drama that goes with this band. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, we could have a whole discussion of, about the the justice of that. And there's two sides to all of that. But, oh, my. There's three sides. Paul, yours, mine, and the truth, as Extreme taught us. That's true. <sighs> That's true. And two but lawyers. Go goodness, it seems really... There seems to be some type of unfairness in that he has nothing of those royalties and is forced to tour to the end of his days. Nonetheless. Well, nonetheless, I do generally enjoy sort of, again, the texture of, of this song. Uh, you know, it's, I, it, it, it's, it's a hit, but it's, it's a good one. So that, you know, it starts with the, yeah, the bass and the hi-hats. Yeah. And and then he comes in with just the half note kick drums, right? And but the way the kick is, the kick has this beautiful deep slap, but there's like a reverb, like almost like a a shot. So you get this like poof, like poof, 
in the background, right? And then when he gets when when it, it gets builds right up before the it's a like that the the eighth note it go completely that that shot reverb goes away and it's just the the kick drum and then that kick drum is is one of the most beautiful kick drum sounds that's ever been recorded they should they should sample it and give it to all of us to use on all of our recordings it's so ridiculously tight and and bassy and punchy and just like the, the treatment that the bass drum gets in the introduction to this, we can talk about all of the, the, the production things. And you listen to this in the headphones and every single song, there are just little tweaks here and there. It's like a Tears for Fears album. There's just like an effect that happens one time on a guitar and it never, it never happens again. It's just for whatever that effect is. And like the bass drum like treatment on the intro of this song is just like how often do you hear the bass bass drum get like special treatment like that for it's just it's just wonderful it's wonderful in some ways you're describing the production of Def Leppard's Hysteria where there's just like so many pieces to the puzzle that are in the production it's hard to to kind of come up with okay how how did we do this in the studio because there were there's there's so many layers of what's going on but that, that's really interesting, Paul. I always liked the song, but I don't know if I, it was one of my favorite songs on the album. And I don't know if I got as much out of it as say you do, Paul. I kind of always thought that it was a good song for the album to kind of get other people involved in outside of Queensryche. Jet City Woman to me was a crowd pleaser. It was one of the ones I had a video for, and it was a reason in part, a reason for the success of the album. So I never thought that this song was Queensryche at his best. I thought it was just a little too produced. You know, the other day when I was listening to the song, you know, I had it cranked up in the car and I, I enjoyed it. Suddenly I wasn't thinking about other things. I, I, was, I was where I needed to be. So it has come around a bit but I don't know if this is one of my favorite songs on the album. Wow. This is great. We're <laughs> all over eight, the map on this, on this record. Eight, 18 million streams on Spotify that disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked. I, 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 I am shocked. Wow. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So the next track is... Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, Ken, oh, Kenny G's oh, oh, got sorry. something to say. I can tell. Sorry, Kenny G. Go for it. I alone could do an episode ragging on this album, but <laughs> oh, I am forced to admit this melody will not leave me. It crept into my head in a preview listen a good 10 weeks ago, and I just cannot stop singing this in my head. Um, and the vocal performance, it could be that the budget allowed Jeff to do his ultimate vocal recording here. There is something going on here with his ease, with his delivery, with Peter Collins' production of the voice. This is the most relaxed, beautiful Tate production I could ever imagine. And maybe this track among all others in the album. I'm glad you brought that up, Ken, because here we are, an hour and a half into a Queensryche episode and we have not been gushing 
all over Jeff Tate's vocal performance. And it's not that it's not of what we would come to expect in terms of quality from Jeff Tate, but it is it it does come across a little bit more relaxed and in some regards it's even more decimating to those mortals among us who you know attempt to do this because it your brain is telling you oh jeff is singing like a normal human being this is awesome i can get on board this train and you try to follow along and you quickly realize no he's still not you poor mortal just stop and sit in the corner and cry but it, it's it's a much more subtle you know it doesn't have the the sort of bombastic theatrics that we've become used to certainly through mind crime and and rage in the morning but it it is still i think technically as tate as as those others. Yeah. This is a great example of being frustrated with Jeff Tate on a level that you didn't think of, because typically you're always like, okay, Jeff is singing into the stratosphere and I can't even come close to what he's doing in the stratosphere. And this song, you, you realize it's just another good example of that. He has such a wonderful range and you, you go, Oh shit. Not only can I not sing Jeff Tate in the high range, I can't <laughs> in the low range. <laughs> Fucker. Don't <laughs> yeah. say anything. You're, you're just, but this is a very, very rich, deep sound that, I mean, I, I do like the verses a lot better than the chorus in yeah. the song for that reason. There is like a, a maturity, I think, to his voice. And there's less of that operatic sort of, you know, heavy metal roots more like singing like we would like like you say tom versus versus this operatic sort of style that he's called on and i don't necessarily know that you know he was singing in in any kind of operatic style in operation mind crime but it was just so darn tootin high the whole time that um you know it was really crazy but yeah the thing it's it happens you know it does happen in the thin line but i think here and throughout the rest of the album you start to get choruses that are real, if you don't mind me using the term, pop music choruses. Choruses where the whole band, it sounds like the whole band is now standing around the microphone and singing the chorus. In mm-hmm. fact, you almost lose the Jeff Tate's singular voice in the choruses. You might even be tempted to think that he's not singing in the chorus, right? And it's all backing vocals and he's just coming in on the, you know, you're the heir to me, whatever. And that, I think, continues through a lot of these songs where, okay, it's the chorus time, everyone into the recording booth, and everyone stands around the microphone and sings the chorus several times, and and they get a, and they, it's not so much gang vocals, but it's that group vocal. And I think that's a huge departure from any of the, of what we've heard before with Queensryche, the you always had the sense that a chorus was sung by Jeff and Chris or, you know, Jeff and and himself. It is cool. I think there was a time when I thought I could sing Jet City Woman front to back with, with a little help on the, on the choruses. Um, that time has passed. The, the line that gets me, we're talking about trying to keep up with the vocals. Waited so long, now the planes delayed an hour reminds me of all our days apart. Hold on just a little longer. Is he telling himself to hold on? Is he telling his significant other to hold on? I don't know, but I laugh every time I hear it because it's just, 
impossible to sing and it's just the peak of the song and it's just beautiful you, you do you do at least get a little break you know before that part because the yeah. guitar solo so you can take a sip of water you know <laughs> you can rest up <laughs> just since we haven't called it out I, this is one of my favorite guitar solos on on the whole album the melody and the phrasing of this guitar solo there are such that there are such great rhythmic sort of plays here in the phrasing they're just exceptional they just sit so well you know there there's one in particular it's like uh, you know i i can't do the rhythm here because it will just be out of context but but there's just this like there's these runs in the middle of these like somewhat speedy runs that he he just stops and plays like a triplet over and over like trill and kind of slows it down and speeds it back up. And then the way that he's playing with the phrasing and the solo, you mentioned the the budget for Jeff Tate to do his greatest vocal performances. I mean, they must have spent hours curating, you know, a solo like this. And it just works so well in the song. And it, and, and it builds to that moment, Ken, which is really the climax of the song, right? You know, the, you know, waiting so long. Now the plane's yeah. late an hour. I mean, yeah. the way it feeds into one part to the next, it's, this is, I don't know if this is my favorite. This is one of my favorite songs on the, on the album. You know, it, the way it's pieced together is, is to me, nothing short of magical. I mean, even to the end of the, you know, jet city, China boys at the end. I mean, Jesus. So can we move on to Della Brown yet? <laughs> Should I go refill my beer now? Are we are we pushing through? <laughs> wow! Seriously, because um, I I am I, empty. I, I was just I was just going to ask that. So we're at an hour forty. I don't think we're going to get through what eight more so- <laughs> songs tonight. Oh my God! We only did three songs. Let's yeah, we break. did. I could be at the Met next week who knows we might be doing a live palaver from oh from the met actually i can't record next week anyway so ha oh, joe just gave us permission to go see queensrike <laughs> oh my god oh my god i just had a ridiculous experience so back when this album came out i would play it really loud in my room and my parents usually my mom would like bang on the door or bang on the wall and ask me to turn it down guys I'm 50 years old and I'm listening to this with you guys on the phone. And my mom was just banging on the door when we were listening. To this. <laughs> <laughs> we love our moms. They're the best. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I love it. All right. So do we do Della Brown tonight or do we start next episode with Della Brown? That's the question. We should do it next episode because if we're just stuck with like resistance, hand on heart and one and only, we're we're not going to have a lot to say. It's going to be a really bummer. So we got to start with a good one. Yeah. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll hold off on Della Brown. We'll, we'll finish up this episode on Jet City Woman. I'm surprised at sort of the, the breadth of reactions so far on this record. It's, it's been a lot more different than I would have anticipated, which is great, you know? Yeah, I'm not. I'm surprised we got all the way through Jet City Woman, frankly. I think that, uh, like you said, Joe, this is their fourth album, and all four of them are are fantastic. But honestly, like, the last three, Rage for Order, 
Operation Micron Empire, they are all epic in their own right. So yeah. So next time we get together, we will finish out, hopefully, fingers crossed, Empire. And then that will move us on to Promised Land, and then we'll see where we go from there. And then we'll do the whole rest of the catalog in one hour. Yeah, if, <laughs> if even that long. Um, but... This was this was a great start. I'm like I said, I'm I'm personally ready to be here with Empire, although I am kind of itching to get to Promised Land, but we need to give Empire its its due. And and Ken, maybe you and I can can talk about a a side episode where you spend an entire episode um, just crapping all over this record because I'm kind of interested to hear that. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> I can sum it up. Um, last time in Paris, and the bonus track does not need to be there. Oh, oh right come now. on. That should be on the main record. Last time in Paris oh, should no. not be on the main record. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to have plenty to talk about. Resistance or hand on heart. No way. Last time in Paris is not a much better song. It's a weird it's, song. It, it's the very oh. first documented occurrence of insane clown Jeffrey. <laughs> now, one, one thing I do want to point out before we leave here, since we've got everyone all stirred up, I was looking and... Somehow, Scarborough Fair, which I always associated with this because I think sonically it fits in, it's it was recorded in 1986. Yeah, our our the version that we had floating around was a import that was in the Rage for Order days. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I yeah. didn't I didn't realize it came from like I, I've just always mentally associated it with with this record. So surprising, yeah. but. Sounds like we have lots to talk about, um, you know, and, and we'll hopefully, you know, we don't normally go into bonus tracks, but I think there's there's a, a little bit of conversation here. We'll get to all that. We'll 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 do it all because that's what we do. And um, so I look forward to that, gentlemen. Appreciate your time here this evening, and can't wait to get back next time and finish out Empire. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. His most expensive woman ever. <laughs> <laughs> So good.